0: Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Ruhaj, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleague Giselle Donnelly
1: and Julia Joza with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University.
0: On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Dominik Jankowski, head of the uh, political section at Poland's permanent delegation um, to NATO in Brussels. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Julia, can I turn to you to to give us a brief introduction uh, for, for our guest and for the topics you, you'd like us to cover on today's episode?
1: Sure. Thank you, Dalibor. Um, I think we don't have to say anything about, um, because our audience already knows that we are completely in awe about Poland's leadership when it comes to Ukraine within this conflict. Um, But we do want to ask the hard questions. And um, I want to frame the first one in, uh, in kind of a, Uh, general or a bit of a macro um, perspective. Dominic and I go back about a decade when he was an advisor to the president of Poland in his office and I was an advisor to the Romanian president. When Poland was trying, um, after one decade from the first EU security strategy to push along uh, a new security strategy for the European Union that would take into account the threat perceptions and security concerns of its newer member states in Central and Eastern Europe. And I was doing my best to um, have Romania on um, on that board and not have it trail behind too much. But back then, unfortunately, as we know, um, with recent European history, We failed because of Western um, uh, European countries who were reluctant to get in um, a focus on Russia. And now we're in 2022, two months into um, the second um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and also just a few months ahead of um, the new NATO strategy that is supposed to be adopted uh, in June in Madrid. Um, And Dominic is now now um, at um, NATO has been there for a long time. So I want to turn to you, Dominic, and ask you, where do we stand um, within NATO conversations on where NATO is supposed to be after um, this, uh, or in the context of this major conflict? And is the NATO summit going to be all about just Finland or Sweden? and Sweden, or is it going to be, um, is there going to be any substantive move? What is the atmosphere sort of within NATO vis-a-vis Ukraine?
2: Yeah, a lot, a lot of tough uh, questions, Julia. Once again, many thanks for having me. Uh, thanks uh, to, to you and Albo for the for kind of introduction. Yeah. Um, I do believe that the NATO summit in Madrid will will be um, not only about uh, Finland uh, and or Sweden, uh, but it will be about primarily NATO's response uh, to Russia's uh, war in in a in a kind of double sense. The first sense, and this is what you have been hearing for a long time, is of course the deterrence and defense element. So how to increase um, uh, alliance posture, military posture on NATO's eastern flank from the, um, let's say, let's call it for the moment, the northern uh, part of it, so the Baltic states, um, then through the central part of it, which is which is Poland, uh, down uh, to the Black Sea, where uh, some of the decision has already been taken uh, on the four additional battle groups. So I, my sense is, we will see decisions that will strengthen NATO presence uh, and make it, hopefully, a permanent one, um, in, in a sense that will guide us um, towards what NATO what should be doing, which is not only deterring potential threats, but in fact, defending against those threats which are visible right now. So uh, on that front, um, I'm kind of um, in, in a positive mood, and I do feel that there is a, a consensus around, um, around those topics. Um, the level of details and the granularity that's still to be discussed Uh, but i think there is a second pillar of um, of that discussion which is what nato uh, um, collectively could do for ukraine and i I think here we we are still um, on a path where um, we could we could have been doing more and hopefully madrid will be a point where we will offer to ukraine a a long-term plan of uh, reconstruction um, and rebuilding its military. Um, of course, this is dependent on on, on on how the war is going to continue and the, the fighting is going to continue. Um, but th- there is this thinking that the NATO summit in Madrid should also offer a very clear uh, or reassure Ukraine, that there is a very clear transatlantic path if Ukraine wishes to continue uh, to continue um, that path in the future.
3: I'd kind of like to push you on that a bit. Um, in the last several days, and, and particularly uh, as the results of the Battle of Kiev and now the sort of opening moves in the Donbass, uh, make it apparent that Ukraine is in even better shape the military is in better shape than uh, even the most optimistic among us may have imagined. You've seen very uh, establishment, um, sort of center of the road political figures come out explicitly in favor of Ukrainian accession to NATO uh, and in pretty short order. Uh, I think uh, particularly about uh, Ivo Dalder, who has been, if nothing else, Um, you know, uh, an indicator of what um, conventional wisdom is in this country. He's no neoconservative, let's put it that way. Um, So if there were a stronger push from Washington to both make the offer to Kiev more explicit and to be uh, a little bit more urgent than the normal NATO process. You know, a, a traditional member action plan is, is a very slow and tedious affair. Uh, whether you think that, that uh, again, just if we could stipulate a strong push from Washington, whether it would be possible to really make this happen in a timely fashion and in a, a way that would make a, a genuine strategic difference
2: this is this is one of the probably most difficult questions that we'll have to face uh, in the next few months. Uh, I, I, I do believe that a stronger push from Washington will be an important element in that discussion, whether it will change the current level of consensus around that I do suspect that this might not be enough. Uh, th- there are there are, there are countries in Western Europe that still do oppose uh, Ukraine's accessions and not only Ukraine's accessions, but also Georgian accessions uh, to um, NATO and I don't think this this war has changed your views maybe even to the contrary. But this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be pushing and, and I think the, the uh, it, to the contrary, this war is just one more additional element of confirmation that bringing those countries to these lines is absolutely something that we, we should continue to do. So uh, I still remember 2018 and discussion around the Brussels summit back then, where mm. back then the, the U.S. administration basically was pushing for this solution, okay, let's Let's skip the membership action plan. Let's skip MAP and bring both Ukraine and Georgia closer to, um, to NATO. Several allies from Western Europe opposed to that. So, uh, you know, I, I would say what, what is needed for sure is a, is a very clear, strong U.S. commitment. Um, to and, and real commitment, not only verbal commitment to open door and, and the Bucharest summit decisions, but but to basically make it happen. Um, the the only caveat that I'm going to make is that let's see what the Ukrainians are going to tell us in a few weeks. Uh, the same goes for Georgians. That there is a change of mood in Tbilisi. This is what we hear. This is what we feel. So. You know, I I I'm, I'm covering it uh, with, with, with those two elements.
0: You you said that there was in the alliance unity on some questions, but there very much is not unity on on some some other key issues. And you know, just like in 2008, it wasn't enough for the United States to be in favor of enlargements, uh to Ukraine and, and 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 Georgia for those enlargements to actually happen and 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 to have. Uh, the the membership action plans on the on the table. There are again the sort of usual suspects in 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 Europe opposed to that uh, today, and there are these same usual suspects also equivocating on this question of how best to help Ukraine in its current in its current situation. So so I think I would be remiss, given that we have a Polish diplomat on the line, not to bring up. The question of Germany and Germany's role in these in these conversations. Obviously, there is a lot of pressure being put on Germany um, right now. Um, but the signals we are getting from Berlin, uh, you know, the fear of escalation. There was a, there was I think an interview today in the in the Spiegel with with the Chancellor where he said that that's the main thing we have to avoid further escalation between NATO and Russia. Um, there is this sort of ongoing story in Germany about uh, about the um, lists of available military equipment that could be provided to Ukraine, which 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 the um, the chancellor decided to just just set aside. Uh, do you think the pressure which is actually being uh, at the moment being put on German government is going to be enough to 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 push Germans in the right direction? Uh that's my first question. And relatedly, um I have a question as a as a sort of you know recovering denizen of, of 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 the Visegrad group. I'm from Slovakia. Uh the Visegrad group has been under a lot of strain, partly uh due to Hungary's position on on, on what's happening in, in Ukraine uh historically over the past you know, five years or so, um, the Polish-Hungarian relationship was very tight. Do you think it can ever recover from uh, what it's been uh, going through in the past uh, six or seven weeks?
2: So, yeah, Dalibor, you're not asking easy questions today, uh, but let me start with the first one on on, on Germany. I I think the pressure should continue, and look. I, I on, on the escalation element, I think there are some other allies like the United States that are worried about this escalation, and there. President Biden has been saying that. I think a lot of people from the U.S. administration has been signaling we need to be mindful of the potential escalatory risk, but it's not stopping the United providing weapons, uh, lethal weapons uh, to. Ukraine. So I, I I think this 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 fear of escalation is exaggerated to some extent. I think with a proper risk management, in, including here in NATO, we, we can we can do it in a way that we don't escalate risk where it's unnecessary, but we still do provide all the necessary weapons to Ukraine uh, as long as Ukrainians are asking us to provide that weapon. So. Um, I think we need to continue uh, to exercise pressure uh, on Germany, but also on other Western European allies to continue uh, to provide uh, weapons. And, and there are some, you know, like there are some really good examples um, and, and recent decisions, including by the Dutch government, including by the Canadian government, that that we see that, that there, there is a change of thinking, um, especially um, when we do see that the Ukrainian armed forces are extremely professional, they're well trained, they know what they're doing, and they are also able to easily adapt to the new situation and new weapons. So it makes sense. But but it's not only about providing weapons. I think the second biggest question when it comes to Germany is uh, to continue to sanction Russian and Belarusian economy. And I think here the fight is internal in, in the EU, mostly because the decisions uh, in the US, in UK, in Canada, they have already been taken. But we do believe that basically uh, a, a, a extreme sanctions on Russian economy, especially on, on the energy sector, and uh, first and foremost oil um, and then gas, should be taken without any delay immediately, right now. I mean, the, the same goes for coal, which is like a minor—minor. I mean minor, it's still an important element of uh, of profits. But waiting for months uh, to to implement those sanctions is, is simply, uh, simply difficult to understand. And and we are seeing some very, let's say. Countries that normally are are not so keen to express their views on on, on sanctions, but but we have uh, recently seen um, and, and heard the declaration uh, by by the French president on sanctioning uh, Russian energy sector, um, especially oil, where the most revenues are coming from. So I think it's doable. So let's continue with that pressure and and, and you know pressure is one thing. Uh, second. We still need to continue providing weapons so uh you know pressuring germany and other uh uh, western european allies that's just one tiny element of that equation second is making sure that all allies are providing weapons big or small but that also requires some additional thinking like backfilling so basically if we uh basically provide we poland or other uh central and eastern european countries are providing weapons uh, to ukraine it means that at some point uh, we will need to, to backfill them uh, with uh, with other Western uh, systems. And on your second question, on, on Visegrad, you know, I, the, the, it's a very interesting element. I have discussed that uh, very recently with some colleagues here in, in NATO. And of course, I still remember um, ten, 10 years ago, uh, before the NATO summit in, in Chicago, where V4 was a coordinating body um, in, in our region and uh, we had a V4 stance for the NATO summit that since then it has never uh, repeated and happened again. I, I think there is the discrepancy between the stance, not only between Poland and Hungary, but frankly between Poland, Czech Republic, um, Slovakia and Hungary uh, has, has grown over the last uh, uh, weeks. Can we bridge that gap? Probably in the short term, this will be very difficult uh, because the our position on key elements, key issues, and those key issues are sanctioning Russia, providing weapons to Ukraine, are in the short term. I I, I don't see how we can bridge that gap apart from, you know, making small steps, for example, on sanctions here and there. Um, whether it's going to have an effect uh, long term on Visegrad, I, I think Visegrad will need to rethink. It's uh, it's um, maybe not the entire existence, but the goals it, it wants to achieve, especially in the defense uh, and uh, defense and security field, because the level of ambition that we set a few years ago uh, simply was not matched by reality in our actions. And I don't think we should be aiming that high. I think we just need to maybe pause it for some time, rethink, and then come back when, once the conditions allow.
1: Um, thank you for that, Dominic. And, um, you're not off the hook yet. I want to ask you an even more difficult question, um, And let's imagine the following scenario. It doesn't matter how likely it is, it is a possibility that we cannot discard given that NATO is not just a military but also a nuclear alliance. We're now seeing the battle of Donbass that everybody's focused on, but we also see, I think, just this morning. Foreign Minister of Ukraine Kuleba was in Bucharest, um, making the point that it's not just about the east; it's about the entire south of Ukraine. And if if the Ukrainians, with um, with our help in terms of weapons, manage in the next few weeks um, to make a difference and to actually get closer to winning this battle even if that is East and South, um, which is something that is in the interest of the West. And I'm confident that we'll do um, as much as possible, given the the, um, current political situation and lack of consensus, but nevertheless, as much as possible to ensure Ukrainian win, then the Kremlin is in a difficult situation, and um, after having lost the Battle of Kiev and after having lost potentially the Battle of the Donbass, can consider um, reverting to, for instance, uh, limited nuclear attack or a wide-range chemical attack, something that we have been discussing throughout this war in the context of escalation again and again. So where does NATO stand on this? Um, how do you see the, the um, interpretation of this kind of a scenario within NATO, and what are the chances of NATO responding in one way or another?
2: To start with, Julia, I, I do believe that we share the concern that this is that, that this scenario is is not a um, extremely improbable scenario. So I, I do believe that the elements that you've mentioned are realistic enough to to assess the probability of. And here I will scale it in that way. First of all, a potential chemical uh, weapons used by Russia. And, and potentially then even further uh, down the road by, um, uh, by, by using or demonstrating nuclear capabilities. So I think in, in NATO, the general assessment is that those two elements, the use of chemical weapons and, and a potential use of nuclear weapons cannot be excluded. I think it's, it, the assessment from the beginning of the war um, has been that the use of chemical weapons is probable. Um, as um, as of course um, it, it doesn't cross the threshold of, of, of nuclear um, elements, and, and I think the one thing, the one really really important element that NATO has done since then is that we started to provide CBRN help um, to Ukraine to make sure that um, at least we are gearing up and, and helping them to be better prepared for that scenario, especially for chemical scenario. Mm. Whether whether this is this is and, and here I, I just I just I just need to take my official hat off for a second and, and say that whether this is going to um, provoke like potential use of chemical weapons, a strong reaction from NATO itself. I, I, I do think that it will for sure um, um, lead to a very strong coordinated sanctioning reply. So more sanctions, uh, e- e- even <laughs> more, more drastic sanctions uh, that will go, hopefully, uh, towards the direction that we discussed uh, a, a second ago. Uh, but and most probably it will help. Help is a bad word. It will it will lead to allies providing additional weapons um, uh, to Ukraine. But. Uh, I don't see, for the moment, um, a, a collective NATO um, response or reply at, at, at this stage. After the discussions that uh, that I have uh, seen and listened to, which which basically means that in, in that chemical uh, attack scenario, um, we, we are we are facing uh, potentially a co- collective uh, reply by by allies, uh, and then then the role of NATO will, will be limited in terms of concrete actions uh, on, on the ground uh, and probably more will be done uh, by allies individually or jointly and then um, hopefully also through um, uh, the EU. When it comes to the nuclear element then I, I think you know then we are entering a, a, an, absolute, um, an absolute threshold which is um, which then I don't see how uh there will be no reaction from nato i i i think this is hopefully this this element will never materialize but this is the threshold there there is of this is of kind of the key element of existence of nato so my point is this will trigger or all the response uh, uh, possible uh, all in all, I just want to say that I, I think at this stage it's important that we do continue to support Ukraine also in the CBRN domain, uh, including a special focus should be given to potential chemical uh, chemical attack. Um, so providing them with all necessary gear, but also helping them to understand and potentially already think about managing the consequences is an important uh, kind of deterring factor. Um, yeah. And, and I think I'll, I'll
3: solve that. Before we uh, wrap up, um, I, I just want to say that it seems to me that, uh, again, even if there's sort of a successful outcome to the Battle of the Northern Donbass, if we want to call it that, there will still remain the question of the Battle of the Land Bridge and the question of whether the Ukrainians will try to retake Mariupol, which I'm I'm sure would be a high priority for them and uh, is a sort of juicy target, if you will, just from a military operational standpoint, that that land bridge is sort of begging to be blown up. Um, but I, the other question that we haven't discussed and I would like to sort of get your take on whether it will come up at the summit is the question of economic reconstruction of Ukraine. We've seen videos this week uh, coming out of the streets of Mariupol. And at least to me, it seems like that's a level of destruction that's even beyond what we've seen previously. Uh, so I wonder what attitudes are across the alliance about the need to not only make sure that Ukraine can defend itself um, whenever there's an armistice, but also can begin the process or what our responsibility would be to help Ukraine reconstruct itself as a society. Now, I mean, as a polity, it's very strong, but uh, as an economy, um, and to what whether there are plans to help with repatriation of refugees and such like.
2: So, uh, on, on, let, let me start with 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 the military element, um, um that, that you alluded to at the beginning of your question. I, I, I think the battle in the South will, will be um, a little bit more difficult for the Ukrainian armed forces because, of course, right now the, the concentration of Russian forces is just happening in one place. But the uh, the kind of element which is important, and we forget about it, is that Ukrainians have been fighting in that region since 2014. So they... Pretty, they, they know very well how to fight on the bus. And the element that has changed since 2014 in comparison to right now is that um, Western uh, countries um, uh, but not only Western countries of, of like countries like Australia, are providing weapons uh, to Ukraine, weapons that they didn't have or didn't have in necessary amounts, in the last few years. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm positive about the outcome uh, about that. But I'm looking at this at this battle with uh, with confidence that we're going to see, once again, a very high level of professionalism of the Ukrainian forces uh, with, of course, uh, Western help. To, to the second uh, element of your question, I, I think, yes, I think this is we, this is our obligation. Um, and moral obligation uh, to help uh, rebuild that country. Um, and, you know, it's it's probably easier said than done. But at the same time, I think this should be a very clear political message to the Ukrainian side from the West. We, once the war is over, we are going to help you to rebuild your country. From scratch, basically, in, in numerous places, uh, because the level of destruction is immense. And, you know, I, I, I think there are of course, better suited organizations than NATO to think about that. I, I don't. I don't believe NATO should be the primary organization to look at it. But even here in NATO, uh, Poland some time ago suggested that we should look at specific programs that will help to rebuild the Ukrainian, for example, military airports um, and other military facilities. So basically, a dedicated program to look at military critical infrastructure that will be needed um uh to be uh, rebuilt and of course the bigger I- issue is is, is is the eu package for um uh, for ukraine and this is something that poland um, has suggested a few weeks ago so the european reconstruction plan for ukraine um so it's already on the table that has already been discussed um i, I think there, there is an important element of making sure that we are going to find the necessary funds. Uh, So, in two weeks' time, in Warsaw, together with the government of Sweden, we'll hold a donors' uh, conference. The first donors' conference that uh, hopefully will will lead to a longer process of countries um, making clear um, uh, commitment to to financially contribute to rebuild uh, uh, Ukraine. But that leads me to my final point, and something that we shouldn't forget when we are thinking about reconstruction of Ukraine. That we should also, as a matter of priority, think about how we are going to make sure that Russia is also going to pay uh, to rebuild um, uh, the, um, the country that, that uh, it destroyed through its uh, through the war um, that it waged um, uh, a few weeks ago. And I think this is an element that we often do not take into consideration because we are thinking, oh, it's going to be difficult. But, but, but I think this is exactly what we should be doing. After. The, the difficult element is making sure that Russia will, at some point in the future, um, pay for that war also directly uh, to Ukraine.
1: You have uh, read our minds, Dominic. I know it's the first time joining, but I think we all agree on this podcast. Um, Russia should, uh, and we should start talking about it in the West, Russia should pay four generations to come for this war. Over to you, Dalibor. Thank
0: you, Dominic. It's it's very rare and, and and very refreshing to hear a diplomat speak so openly and and, and so frankly, and we very much appreciate that. Um, from Dalibu Rohaj, Giselle Donnelly,
1: and Yulia Joza.
0: Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest, Dominic Jankowski. You can find more content and previous episodes on our website, ai.org on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us uh, via Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please consider rating, reviewing us, uh, subscribing. Uh, for that, thank you, and until next time.